0: Welcome to the NPX Innovation Catalyst podcast, the podcast where we talk to innovative leaders in the nuclear industry and beyond. I'm your host, Margaret Macbeth, co-founder and innovation catalyst at NPX. Today, we're speaking with Jeff Richardson, Senior Vice President of Darlington Refurbishment at Ontario Power Generation. Well, welcome, Jeff, to Kincardine and to NPX. We're really excited to have you here today. Um, before we get started with uh, introductions, um, I have a confession to make. Um, I knew of you, Jeff. I obviously knew you were uh, SVP of Darlington Refurb and had heard your name and seen you on social media. Um, But I hadn't had the opportunity to meet you until last week at the Darlington Innovation Workshop. And uh, as you got up to present, I have to admit, you know, I I thought you'd give us an energetic recap of (laughs) refurbishment, uh, but wasn't really expecting too much more. Um, But then all of a sudden, up comes a photo of El Cap. And I kind of nudge Brad. Is this guy going to talk about El Cap? <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> and you proceeded to tell us uh, um, a really fascinating, the really fascinating tale of uh, climbers' uh, attempts to uh, ascend El Capitan in Yosemite Park, and how. Uh, That has advanced from, I believe, a 42-day initial. I think
1: 47 days of climbing on the mountain. Yeah, over (laughs) eight months. It took them eight months. Uh,
0: To, um, more recently, Alex Honnold uh, doing it without ropes in just under four hours. Correct. Uh, And then uh, just about a year ago in under two hours. Correct. Uh, So I was... Uh just immediately engaged and fascinated and so excited that you were coming up uh, to our office this week so we could have a much longer conversation, not entirely about, about um, Capitan. the culture okay. of uh, climbing in Yosemite, but uh, was really interested to get your take on nuclear and uh, culture and innovation and your journey. So welcome.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Great. Yeah.
0: Um, so, just I guess by way of a uh, bit of an introduction about you, um, I'll start it off. Feel free to, to correct me where I'm wrong or, or jump in. Uh, but you joined OPG um, as the senior vice president of refurb in 2018. Correct. All right, the and you're not a Canadian. Year.
1: You can tell by my <laughs> accent, I'm not a Canadian. All those people, I tell people I'm from Southern Ontario just as an icebreaker. But no, I'm from uh, originally from Arkansas in the United States. Went to university there, got my degree in electrical engineering. Uh, I've lived the, the previous 18 years in Jackson, Mississippi, which is uh, the nuclear headquarters for a uh, vertically integrated uh, utility called Entergy, which is where I spent most of my career up until the move to uh, OPG last year.
0: Right. I was looking at your bio, and it looks like that was your first job after graduation. Uh, it
1: was. <laughs> I actually, uh, even before graduation, I was a co-op uh, student oh, wow. for three terms with Entergy at the uh, Arkansas Nuclear One, uh, two-unit pressurized water reactor in in Russellville, Arkansas, uh, during my co-op tour and then hired in full-time when I graduated.
0: Wow. Um, And you started off in engineering project management in one of the reactors?
1: Uh, I was in design engineering, and and I was responsible primarily for instrumentation and control. Uh, You know, I did early on, I did a lot of uh, instrument error calculations and and things like that, kind of learning the the business, and then uh, slowly kind of moved more into the modifications realm and upgrades and, and change-outs, uh, plant process computers, turbine control systems, things like that. So that was my early career in design and modification engineering.
0: Okay, and where did you go from there? You've held a number of roles. Yeah,
1: I, yeah. sometimes my, my, uh, my uh, peers tell me I have a hard time keeping a job because about every two years I, I have to do something different. But what was really amazing was uh, that I was able to spend 28 years with Entergy but changing jobs about every two to three years and it was a it was a fantastic uh, company and and gave me tremendous opportunity to do different things so after a number of years in in engineering uh, in in different roles and kind of system engineering and and maintenance engineering project engineering uh, moved more into the supervisory ranks uh, and ran um, a couple of initiatives uh, one of which was uh the, the instrumentation and control portion of our license renewal. So uh, in the US regulatory framework, um you have a 40-year uh license to operate a plant and then there's an opportunity to submit with a lot of, of attendant analysis a 20-year extension. And so Intergy was in the process of seeking extensions for the two units there in, in Arkansas. Uh and my team led the the electrical INC portion of that that submission. Uh, And then about that time, about 1999, 2000, Entergy was uh, interested in in, uh, what was going on primarily in the U.S. Northeast, where uh, I think similar to the kind of evolution of Ontario Hydro, uh, the the regulatory framework for retail regulation was changing and uh, the the utility companies were going to be broken up into either transmission and distribution or generation. And so a lot of the companies were opting to stay in the uh, distribution and, and transmission area and they were selling off their generating plants and so Intergy moved into the uh, realm of buying uh, nuclear plants from other utilities and taking them over and, and, and integrating, integrating them into our fleet. Uh, so I got the chance to move into that and, and uh, uh, be a part of the team that was, was a, you know, valuing and performing due diligence activities, negotiating acquisition terms and conditions, and then ultimately taking those plants into our operating uh, protocol.
0: And I was going to say after 28 years with Energy and what sounds like a really exciting and interesting and varied career, um, how did OPG convince you to come up uh, to Ontario and uh, take on uh, such a, a large project like Darlington?
1: It's, it's a good question. I, you know, As I mentioned before, the you know, it was such a great, great experience for me to work for Energy uh, and, and really if you'd asked me a year and a half ago, I would have told you I would be with introduce the rest of my career, uh, great company. And it had afforded me the chance to do new things over and over again, uh, and, and go in new, new directions, which to me was just really what drove me in terms of my career it was trying new things and, and, and taking new chances, uh, to, to demonstrate value and to add value to a company. Uh, and, and ultimately when it came, you know, the timing of it was such that, uh, uh, this looked like the most amazing opportunity in nuclear that was within uh, arm's reach of, uh, of me to be a part of. And uh, that was ultimately the compelling uh, the compelling case that led me to make the decision to come up to LPG.
0: Amazing. But uh, a big change. New technology, new country.
1: Yeah, true. <laughs> um,
0: and major project refurbishment project underway. How did you approach that change in the... Challenges that I'm sure came along with it. What was your mindset coming
1: in? Well, you know, I like to think that you know the the experiences I'd had before in my career and the choices I'd made had had given me, if nothing else, the ability to navigate transition uh, optimistically and positively, and and so I didn't really think too much, uh, honestly, about oh, it's going to be different culture, it's going to be different, you know, different country, a different uh, company. You know, I really just just looked at it like this is another new opportunity to do something I haven't done before. And uh, so I, there wasn't too much uh, hesitation in terms of the project or the company. Uh, you know, I wanted to make sure it was the right uh, decision for me personally, for my family, uh, and, you know, navigating those kind of questions. But in terms of the job uh maybe naive optimism was was my was my shield against uh too much concern but but i, I launched into it without a lot of a lot of hesitation uh it, it seemed like a, a you know to make reference to el capitan mountain i wanted to right. wanted to climb yeah
0: that's great no i guess you need a bit of uh you know, you know sometimes not fully founded optimism. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, nothing, nothing
1: really through. innovative would get started if totally. people only considered yes. the, uh, okay. the negative, negative uh, potential outcomes. So.
0: Absolutely, well, I'm, I'm curious though, when you did um, make the shift and uh, get into role at OPG, what were some of the differences that stood out? I, I guess both in um, terms of the organization, but also just the, the, the industry um, in the two different countries.
1: Well, first of all, I would say there are a, a, a lot of similarities. Uh, you know, it, it's a, it's uh, wherever you go. I mean, I think people understand that nuclear power is is different and unique uh, in, in in its core technical um, parameters, and and I think people treat it as such. So the kind of the mission critical nature of it, the the drive uh, for absolute, uh, um, you know, targeting of safety and quality as your top priorities, that that creates this really, really firm common foundation, uh, whether you're in the U.S. or Europe or, or here. Um, you know, in terms of differences, uh, you know, Intergy was a vertically integrated utility. Uh, OPG is is uh, essentially a generation utility, very similar in, in their uh, fundamental frameworks. Um, so so the, the corporate structure was not something that was unfamiliar to me, didn't feel foreign. Um, and, and I'll say also that uh, that... The sense I got from very early on uh, at OPG was that uh, most people had been there a long time. They'd been with the company most of their careers, or at least for, for decades. And uh, it felt very, very much like a family. And that was the experience I had at Intergy, and one that I really appreciated and and, and uh, uh, really enjoyed. So it was good to see that as a common feature, that I was not going to be radically different in, in terms of that kind of fundamental uh, cultural shift. In terms of some of the differences, you know, there are some differences. You know, one of the jokes I, I continue to, to talk about is I'm still learning how to say project and process <laughs> instead of project and process. I'm still learning how to say turbine right. instead of turbine, turbine, which is the way I'd grown up saying it uh, for my entire career in, in the U.S. Uh, so, you know, subtle little cultural differences like that. Um, the, uh, the thing I did notice about refurb in particular. Uh, and this this I think sets it apart a little bit from from the larger OPG organization uh, is uh, that that it really uh, did have a creative and innovative um, strata to it and, and uh, you, I saw a lot of uh, young people uh, and a lot of um, a lot of people who were from outside of the nuclear industry. You know, they'd come from, whether it was broader construction backgrounds, or engineering backgrounds, whether it was uh, uh, from the finance or banking businesses, just a lot of people who didn't, uh, who hadn't come up in the industry like I had. And that was very different. So I didn't see that very much in my US utility experience. Uh, typically, uh, you know, most people who were in the business by the later stages of their career had been in that business for their whole career. And people like me. And so it was, it was really, really exciting to get to talk to so many people and work with so many people from outside the nuclear business who were bringing new ways of seeing things, new concepts, new ideas uh, to what we were doing, while as well as, you know, learning a lot from the people who'd been in nuclear their whole careers and, and had a lot of insight and perspective on how the project could be successful. So uh, th- those are some differences. I, you know, I, I told, uh, I was telling a couple of my co-workers not too long ago that, I'd never had to deal so often with uh, paternity and maternity leave. Oh, yes, uh, yeah, it's d- so the, different. The, yeah, the, the, the U.S. utility was, you know, the average age was well into um, the 40s, and, and, uh, and, and some utilities were even uh, further along than that. So coming into OPG with uh, so many young people uh, was just, oh, I didn't, okay, <laughs> I'm not going to see that person for a year, for six weeks, or three months, or whatever was a, you know, that was one of the things that stood out to me as unusual and, and really exciting I mean, in terms of, of working with people who are at the early stages of their career and, and have a lot of energy and new ideas and initiative to, to take us to the next level of performance.
0: Great. Um, I'm curious, you, joining a project that was already well underway by the mm-hmm. time you joined, what did your first 60 days in role look like? like? What were your priorities? How did you integrate into the team and establish yourself um, as a leader?
1: well it, it you know that that's a great question, and I did spend a fair amount of time thinking about you know the first one hundred days um, and, and i'll say i'll say uh, say this one of the the great um, you know opportunities that this particular role has given me was you know the vision was i I was really being you know brought in as a successor uh, to somebody who you know who was who was uh, going to be moving on from the project at some point in the relatively near future and so the, the vision that OPG had was to, to basically bring in deputies who would partner with the, the person they would ultimately be succeeding uh, and, and create a kind of a, a really extended period of, of uh, collaboration and training and a, and a smooth handoff. And one of the things I noted uh, as I was considering the position was when you go look at large scale mega projects, whether it's in nuclear or other businesses, um, there are lots of reasons projects succeed there are lots of reasons that large-scale projects fail but in general the one thing all failed projects have in common is a change in leadership and and so uh, and and of course mega projects tend to go for years and so you're almost always going to have a change in leadership even if things are running well and going smoothly uh, just due to the time factor and that it's it's that change in leadership that if it's not handled properly can be extremely disruptive to the outcomes that you're trying to accomplish, and so uh, I really admired uh, OPG's foresight in planning a long overlap uh, between uh, the the previous leadership and the and the new leadership coming in. And so what that meant for me was honestly a lot of the pressure was off those first 100 days. I, I'd kind of built up in my mind, you know, the the, the idea of of how to uh, how to come in and and to integrate and to you know kind of set the leadership tone but in reality a lot of that pressure was often over a much extended period of time so now that i'm kind of past my first year uh and and unit two is is coming into completion and unit three is getting ready to to uh open breaker uh early next year uh, i've really spent a lot of time now focusing on okay now is the pivot so it's almost like that i've had a little bit of a uh you know training wheels on for a while Uh, with the Unit 2 team being uh, in in place and working, and myself and the rest of the Unit 314 team are working, uh, you know, very deliberately to make sure we're ready. And uh, so I I really think the biggest challenges and opportunities lie in the next, you know, six months to a year in terms of uh, getting Unit 2 safely back online and getting Unit 3 prepared for shutdown and, and defuel and beginning the refurbishment process.
0: And what are you doing to um, sort of set yourself and your team up to make that pivot and to achieve those successes?
1: Well, I think, uh, first of all, it's just the, it's the day-to-day work of planning the, what we're gonna be doing. Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with a deep integration of uh, critical elements of the Unit uh, 314 team into what Unit 2 is doing, so we are grabbing the experiences, the lessons learned, uh, the improvement opportunities, the, you know, uh, the things to avoid the challenges that, 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 they've discovered as they've been the first unit to go through refurb at Darlington and making sure that all of that is built into our plan. So a lot of it is, is what I'll call the blocking and tackling of good project management. It's, it's building a detailed, uh, schedule. It's building, a, a really robust risk register. It's, it's investing our time and energy in, um, quality engineering and in uh, construction work package development uh, and, and making sure that all the experiences and knowledge we've gained on the first unit are built into the plans for the second unit so we have even better performance maintaining safety and quality while improving schedule and, and budget performance.
0: So it's, um, it's been really wonderful to see how OPG is embracing innovation um, and I mean the fact that you had an innovation workshop at, mm-hmm. to really showcase to your supplier community, what was happening, where the innovation was happening um, in a lot of different areas, in in more technical areas, Mm -hmm. project management, um, and then also the people aspect, right? Right. How do we staff this refurbishment? How do we make sure there's a pipeline of skilled trades and talent that is going to not only keep this project going, but keep our industry running? So um, I guess, are you pleased with the speed of innovation? in OPG and in the industry? And where do you see the biggest opportunities for innovation right now?
1: I, uh, the, the, the answer is yes. I'm pleased with what, uh, what OPG has done. The, um, uh, you heard a little bit in the, the symposium last week, uh, some of what we're doing with our, our tooling innovations. Uh, we're literally taking months and months off of our, our schedule for the subsequent units uh, through pure technical improvements uh, to our tooling and equipment learned uh, through the experience at, at, at Darlington Unit 2. Um, so I'm really pleased with that, uh, you know, the, whether it's our IRI organization uh, and their innovations in inspection and support capability, or the X-Labs and the technology and techniques that they're developing for a variety of, of activities, uh, or the internal things within refurb like the D3IP initiative that Derek uh, Billick talked about last week. Uh, you know, all those are really exciting to see, and they really are yielding absolutely value-added results for the future of refurb at Darlington and elsewhere. Um, you know, the, the, I remember having a conversation early in my career uh, with a, a, a leader who had transitioned from basically the fossil uh, side of the generation house into into nuclear, and, and the point he made, uh, about the differences between fossil generation and nuclear generation is and these are obviously just kind of metaphorical uh figures but he said uh, you know on the fossil side 80 cents of your cost is the fuel and 20 cents is the is the people on the dollar uh you come to nuclear and it's just the opposite it's 80 cents of the dollar uh is people and 20 cents is is the fuel Uh, and maybe even a little less here in in canada with the unenriched uh, uh uranium fuel source um the point being that we are a very, very people and process-driven uh, um, entity and, uh, in, in the nuclear business uh, here and elsewhere, and that the real opportunity, I think, going forward to make ourselves um, more effective and more cost-efficient uh, is, is to really seek out and leverage opportunities for process improvement. Uh, that that drives the, the value of our people uh, that makes us leaner and, and more efficient, uh, less bureaucratic uh, and, and that because you're really the opportunity for cost savings is on that 80 cents on the dollar that's uh, tied to to people and and I think that there's where, where there remains a lot of opportunity going forward uh, for efficiency and, and and opportunity to gain, some of the things we're doing in that exact regard within refurb, uh, we've recently uh, partnered with um, uh, some folks who are helping us with uh, lean and kaizen uh, tools and methods to look at some of our existing processes to try to find uh, better ways uh, with less waste, less uh, fewer handoffs, uh, less time waiting on on approvals and reviews and other things uh, to execute the fundamental processes we use to to perform work uh, and and to um, you know keep our plants uh, running keep our modifications moving forward so I think there's a lot of value we're already seeing from just the first few of those activities we've gone through uh, I think using that as a platform for looking at the broader uh, suite of things we're engaged in will yield even more value so that's the kind of thing where I think Uh, All the technical things I'm really, really excited about, Um, and and I think they're going to continue to yield value. But I think those process and people-oriented things are going to have a lot of potential as we go forward as well.
0: So how do you look at fostering that culture of continuous improvement within your team and kind of within the larger organization?
1: Well, that's a good question. Uh, And and the first thing I would say is that, uh, you know, uh, it is difficult to sustain that kind of perspective because um, if you look at most organizations, most organizations started with those exact kinds of values to be agile, to be efficient, to be uh, able to, to react quickly to change. And there's kind of a natural uh, you know, arc to organizational development that begins in that early, you know, that startup phase. And then as the, as the company grows, uh, in order to be uh, efficient and to manage the scope, you tend to develop processes and, and organizations and departments within the larger company. And one of the things that naturally happens when you do that is you, know, you tend to become a little more calcified, a little more bureaucratic, a little more rule-driven. Uh, and, and then as you age into uh, you know, the organizational life cycle, Um, mistakes are made, and so processes are adjusted and corrected to adapt to those uh, challenges and and, uh, breakdowns, and the processes become gradually more and more complex. And I'm not sure I've seen a company that's been able to, uh, you know, systematically, consistently maintain that sharp, agile eye throughout the life cycle. I think what happens is you, you, you develop that kind of, Uh, bureaucracy grows within an organization over time and then you have some sort of forcing function from the outside whether that's a uh, a, you know a revenue crisis or a budget crisis or some other you know a competitor uh, and then it brings some sort of stimulus to the organization to step back and then a change agent of some kind uh, comes in and and tries to shake things up. So in terms of maintaining it I don't know that that uh, that I've spent much time or energy thinking about how do we maintain a consistent uh, attitude, uh, you know, for 10 years or or beyond. I think what we're focused on now is, look, what do we do with what we have in front of us? How do we execute with excellence? Uh, how do we have uh, people who are who are excited about being a part of our uh, our organization, who are committed to our objectives, uh, and we have a deep succession plan to to keep people fresh and, and challenged and and um, you know, on their toes from the perspective of, of being up for the next big uh, opportunity. Uh, I think if you do that, that gives you as much longevity of that attitude as, as you can expect. Um, and, and then we'll see. You know, they're, they're make, uh, I'm, I'm confident that even with the best processes, you're going to miss things. And so my expectation is, you know, my successor or, or uh, her successor or her successor, they're going to see something we didn't see. And they're going to bring in uh, a vision or a drive to, to, you know, create new opportunity that we just didn't, either either we let go or, or that we had missed when we looked at it. So I don't worry too much about that. I think it's really more focusing on where we are and how do we become the best organization we can be for the near term. And then you have to trust in your succession planning and your, and your development of your people uh, to carry it forward
0: industry-wide, too, we can become a bit complacent in Mm -hmm. how things are done and what the expectations are, and it does take disruption, either political change or crises, or, you know, um, companies that are doing things differently. So I'm curious about your thoughts of the role of companies like NPX within the startups or uh, companies that haven't traditionally found a place in nuclear uh, with, you know, different types of technologies, be it machine learning uh, analytics. Um, do you see a shift happening, and do you see a, a role for that sort of disruptive companies and disruptive technologies in the industry?
1: Well, to, to the point we just had uh, on that in that previous conversation, uh, there's no question that nuclear power has a number of uh, you know enemies at the gate, uh, to, to borrow a phrase. So, so whether it's the you know the competition from you know shale gas pricing in the, in the U.S. or uh, the challenges of, of waste management uh, and and, and other alternative renewable technologies that are out there uh, to be responsive to to climate change, you know, there's a lot of challengers to the nuclear industry. Not to mention you know the the we have to be unrelenting in our guard for safety and quality uh, because we're the final you know the the, the the final analysis, the most important thing we have in nuclear power is to guard the technology, and to keep make sure our, our people and the public are safe. Um, so I think that that um, it is an industry that is ripe for the kind of renewal that that we see happening in places. You hear a lot of conversation about uh, small modular reactors, which I remember when when uh, uh, when Entergy was looking at new technologies fifteen years ago. There was already this talk of, of small modular reactors, but nobody took it really seriously at the time because it was such a radical shift from the models, uh, both technologically and from a regulatory framework perspective, so far afield of anything we'd seen or done before. Um, and yet, here we are because of those external factors uh, driving the larger electrical generation uh, uh, industry, SMRs now. Loom much larger on the horizon as as the potential next phase for nuclear power. So, I think that that uh, we are in a in a particular position in this, these last you know five to ten years, and certainly the next five to ten years, where the industry is looking around for the vectors for the forcing functions that are going to give us the edge to make the transition, to sustain ourselves, to, to be a viable industry going forward. So, I, I think in that regard, companies like NPX. Uh, initiatives like uh, you're sponsoring, the use of technology, lever- leveraging machine learning, things like that are all, uh, this is as good of a time as ever uh, for the nuclear industry to embrace those opportunities and to see what kind of value they can add to the uh, to the industry.
0: Uh, what do you, like to you, what is the value of nuclear power? And when you think ahead 30 years, where do you hope the industry is? What's your vision for that?
1: Well, I, I think it, uh, you know, I, I think that that the industry has played an invaluable and currently plays an invaluable role in uh, the broad electrical supply for the world and that it's done so in a way that's been exceptionally, and I would say without peer, responsible, uh, ecologically responsible. Uh, and, and I think that uh, uh, our safety record is... Um, unparalleled in, in our, our interest and commitment to protect the safety of our employees and of the public and I think that uh, you know those are incredible legacies that we have and, and I think that uh, it, it's if the uh, if the larger industry holds itself to similar standards I think nuclear power uh, has a strong role in the future now I, fifty years from now you know we could talk different technologies you know nuclear may uh, in the uh, uh, at least the uh, uh, Commercial nuclear powers that exist today may be a bridging technology to some, some uh, uh, more efficient way of producing electricity uh, for, for the world, uh, or it may continue to play a role even beyond that, uh, that time frame. And I think a lot of that depends on technology. So I wouldn't rule out you know, some, uh, some, new, uh, some new alternative energy source if we ever solve difficult problems like uh, fusion, uh, things like that. Uh, you know, a lot of the things we see as kind of foregone conclusions for, for power generation may end up being abridging technologies. But I think that, that uh, nuclear power specifically uh, has probably not done itself a lot of favors in terms of the way we've managed our public uh, perspective and the, the, the view of the public toward our industry. And, and I think that's unfortunate because I do think we've been very, very good uh, uh, corporate citizens uh, in general and uh, that we've done a very very good job of containing uh, and using and leveraging a technology that is absolutely unique and and uh, important uh, but also potentially very dangerous if not handled properly and I think we've done that I think I think we've shown the the, the value of safety and quality um, uh, consistently for, for decades now so I think there's a, a, a powerful legacy. I think there's a, a, a high potential of a great future, uh, but like everything in the future, it's at risk depending on how we behave, the decisions we make, the investments we make, uh, and to your point, uh, you know, are we open to innovation, to change, to new ideas that can help us, you know, pivot uh, where we need to pivot to fit the ever-changing marketplace that we're trying to be a part of.
0: No, absolutely. I think one of the concerns I have too is how do we attract new people young talent how do we get the Jeff Richardsons who are graduating right now to join our industry and and stay what do you kind of how do you feel we can attract young talent and and what do you think is the how can we foster a a culture that uh, young people want to be a part of
1: uh that's a great question it's funny that you say that uh when I first uh, you know I finished my last uh uh, co-op tour and uh, about eight months later went to work full-time uh and, and uh, at the at power plant. And within the first six months, our, our new, uh, I believe he was a chief operating officer at the time, came and talked to us. And uh, this, this gentleman who's really a, a, a hero in the US nuclear industry uh, had, had come through nuclear power, um, I believe through naval uh, reactors and, and ultimately been a, a site executive. But uh, he was now the chief operating officer and in this first address that I was sitting in as a full-time employee, he talked about how, uh, and this was but it would, would have been 1991 sometime in that time frame, um, he talked about how, well, this is probably the end of the industry's coming and decommissioning is going to be the next <laughs> big business, going to be shutting all these plants down. And you can imagine I'm out of school less than a year and my chief operating officer is, is telling me this. and It was like a, a pit in my stomach. And, uh, but, I mean, I think he saw some things in the, at the time in the, in the U.S., uh, industry that uh, that gave some indication that that uh, there were troubled waters ahead that we had to navigate carefully, uh, and and that didn't turn out to be true in the '90s. Uh, although you know, uh, with the uh, announcement yesterday of the final shuttering of Three Mile Island, uh, you know we're getting closer to that being a, the growth business in the U.S. Uh, the decommissioning of plants. Um, so so I think there's always been this specter of. Is it, and this to, exactly the question you asked, is it a technology of the past or is it a technology of the future? And, uh, and I, think the, I think the jury is out. Um, one, one of the reasons I wanted to come to uh, OPG and to Darlington is because it seems to me that, that Ontario uh, broadly uh, and, and OPG in particular uh, are betting that it's a part of the future. And, um, and a lot of the rest of the world continues to see uh, nuclear as a part of the future. So I think, that, I think some of it's the perspective, some of it's the internal culture we create uh, within our companies um, to, to be a place where, where we have that, that, the idea of the, what's the art of the possible. right? Because uh, there's always dark clouds looming on the horizon, whatever industry you're in, whatever business you're in. Um, in terms of what we do to attract people, I, I think, the most important thing is to, uh, is to have a, a culture where people are valued, uh, where people want to come to work and, and are appreciated for what they do. And the second thing is to do interesting work. Uh, and, and I think on that regard, nuclear starts out with a very uh, a good uh, head start in a lot of other places. We are doing some really, really interesting and amazing things in nuclear power. And, and I think that that, uh, for a young engineer, um, or a young business person or, or a young communications person or a young HR person, uh, all kind of opportunity mm-hmm. in, in our industry. Um, and, and and the work itself is interesting and important. And I think that's that's a, a big draw. And then having a corporate culture where people are valued, I think just amplifies the, the interest that people would have. So to me those are it's 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 building it's fundamental building blocks. It's it's blocking and tackling. Do interesting work that adds value to our society in a place where you're valued and enjoy being. If you do those three things, you're not going to have a a difficult time attracting talent, I don't think.
0: I would agree. I think there are challenges, but I fully agree with your points on culture. And I was curious um, about your thoughts on diversity within the industry. Um, I think OPG has really been a leader Mm -hmm. in diversity, particularly gender diversity right. within um, within the organization. But, you know, you still go to conferences and workshops and look around, and yeah. oftentimes it's, uh, um, you know, there's not many women there, right. or um, or it's the, everyone kind of looks the same. So I'm just curious. I know you're a father of two daughters. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts about, let's focus on women yeah. in the industry, women in science and technology, and, and what role um, can organizations like OPG and, and PX play in... Um, Helping to spark that talent pipeline mm-hmm. and promote women right. within our organizations.
1: I, I think. I think the, you know, the first thing is that we have to be a place where people who are, you know, different from the majority population feel uh, uh, welcomed and um, and safe, and in a place where they feel there's opportunity, uh, a place where they feel like their their contributions are valued and appreciated, uh, and, and I think. We, you know, that starts with having intrinsic values in your corporate culture um, that that require those kind of, of behaviors, where people are valued and, and respected and appreciated, where people are um, uh, people know that they're safe to offer their perspective, to speak up, uh, and and where there's real opportunity for people, regardless of of gender or or, or race or, or orientation of any kind, that people have the opportunity to to feel like they're being valued based on their contributions and, and so when you have and that really starts at the very top of the organization it's the behaviors there uh and then driving that through the leadership uh and the rest of the company that that create the opportunity for that to grow and and in my you know to translate it back to maybe uh, a, a physical example to me when you create that kind of environment it, it draws in um, uh people who, who want to be a part of that and uh, I think that's the first thing to do I think there's a lot of tactical things that companies can do uh, you know sponsoring uh, you know schools and, and stem education and and speaking about that and participating and cheerleading for all those things you know those are tactical things you can do uh, but it's all an extension of that commitment at the very top um, you know one, one of the things breath and I've talked about before is is uh, leadership and you know, I once I once heard, and I, I really do believe this. I once heard a leadership described this way that the only thing leadership creates is culture. It's not our job to, to make all the decisions. It's not our job to create the technology. You know, uh, but the one thing we are responsible for creating is culture. And, and so I think that to me, uh, if if the leadership of a company of an organization takes seriously. The, the intrinsic inherent value in having a diverse workforce and then they go about uh, driving that value into the company, a lot of these other things will open themselves up. Um, there's a lot of remedial work that has to be done sure. because we've created antagonistic cultures to uh, within companies and organizations that have already kept people out and, and so I think there have to be, it's absolutely appropriate that there be some Initiatives that that break down those historic barriers, that reach across proactively to pull people in, and to make up for some of the uh, the failures of the past, uh, and then beyond that, just to carry forward that the valuing of, of diversity as a uh, creating real business uh, uh, business value going forward.
0: Obviously, from the the talk I saw last week, you're someone who enjoys or has a passion for adventure sports. And I noted from uh, your biography that you are a fan of endurance sports. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what you what you like to do and what your routine is there
1: yeah I think the, and I like the way you said a fan of rather than I am an endurance athlete because I'm not an endurance athlete I aspire to be one um me too <laughs> yeah the uh, the uh uh yeah I was not I was not uh uh into athletics a lot growing I played played a few sports but but nothing too seriously and it wasn't until my mid-30s that I discovered uh running and uh, subsequent to that I've been consistently a runner for for uh, uh, coming up on twenty years now, um, but along the way, just the idea of i like i have to say I like the um, uh, the isolation you know the the uh, of, of being on a four hour uh, run or, or being out cycling for five or six hours you know by yourself uh, being in a pool for you know forty five minutes you know without bringing your head up too often and so th- that i don't know what it is about that, but uh, it, it's just a real um, and so, it, to me, it's a very kind of calming, centering activity, maybe even meditative at certain uh, periods of, of, uh, of those processes. And I love the discipline it requires, you know, in training for, uh, uh, you know, whether it's a marathon or, or, or a long-distance long, long distance triathlon, uh, the, the rigor of building your life around these kind of activities. I remember uh, I was about halfway through uh, training for uh, – uh, my first half Ironman, and was literally spending about 15 hours a week, you know, under either in the water, in the on the saddle or on the road, and it got you know it, from the outside looking at that schedule, it was really intimidating. Where am I going to find an extra, you know, 15, 16 hours a week? Um, but once you were in it, it was almost like this. Uh, uh, it was almost comforting to have that that framework of of discipline forming uh, the backbone of your week. You know, whatever meeting I was in, whatever decisions were pending, whatever crises we were responding to at the time, you knew that in two hours, you're gonna be in a pool swimming 3000 meters. And, and that's all that you'd be thinking about was one, one stroke after the other. So that, that to me was something that's really resonated. And it's been, I think for, for me personally, it's been a really powerful stress and anxiety coping mechanism Uh, And, you know, I'm certainly I don't aspire to be competitive in any of those things, but just the practice of it itself Mm -hmm. has been really a a great, a great solace to me and and a great benefit to me, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I fully agree. I think the more stress and responsibility we have, it's almost more important that we have that that time for ourselves, be it through sport or other activities I noted as well you are an avid reader so any um, can you share a few books that have been very influential to you maybe both to your life and as a leader
1: um, yeah so the first thing I would say about reading is uh, you know I, I read I read a, I think a reasonably wide uh, breadth of, of book categories and I'll, I'll just make this a plea for for a, a, a hearing a lot of people read a lot of you know, leadership, management, uh, self-help, you know, kind of non-fiction uh, learning books, which is fantastic. And I I do that as well. But, you know, I think my life has been improved and my, uh, my perspectives have been broadened and my wisdom has been deepened much, much more by reading literature than by reading, you know, non-fiction. And uh, all my, my friends who are deep history buffs and love biographies are probably rolling their eyes now. But but I really think that there's a that there's a great undervaluing, especially in technical disciplines, of uh, literature and and uh, the wisdom that comes with that, uh, the knowledge of the human experience. So uh, I read a, 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 a I try to be reading you know something like that along with you know maybe something that's more fun and lighthearted and something that's that's more nonfiction whether it's science or a biography or, or history. So uh, you know, to me having a mix uh, is important and, and you know, for all of us uh, engineering technical types, I would just make a plea to make some room in your, in your reading diet for, for literature and poetry and things like that.
0: I fully agree, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think there's too few of us who actually take the time <laughs> to read. And so there's so much wonderful literature, both yeah. old and new. Um, any uh, current good reads that you can share?
1: Uh, well, one of, the, one of the books I think uh, Brett and I talked about uh, when we were visiting last was Ray Dalio's uh, Principles. Uh, and it's really a compendium, but, but it's well done in that uh, you know, it's kind of his, uh, his key philosophy for both life and management and leadership. But he puts it in the context of his own narrative, his stories, how he started his business, how he, he became successful, how he transitioned other organizations into successful organizations. Uh, but then from that, he really distills kind of a, a punch list of, of management, you know, uh, uh, commandments and, and uh, wisdom that's really helpful. So that, that's one that, that uh, I've worked through recently that I've found a huge number of reminders and new insights into decision-making and, and leadership that, that I'm trying to integrate into my own practice.
0: What would your perfect day look like?
1: Uh, perfect day would be up very early. Uh, Start with a a cup of coffee and and probably, you know, some sort of reading or or, uh, uh, some meditative practice. Uh, Then probably uh, would go for a run Uh, and just depending on on the day, the the distance, uh, maybe a workout as well. Uh, And and then getting into the day, you know, whatever uh, work there is to accomplish, uh, you know, uh, front loaded, you know, go into the day with the most challenging things at the top of the the itinerary uh and then in the evening uh you know dinner with my wife uh, maybe catch up on the latest uh netflix uh, uh show or the new hbo series or or whatever showing i'm a big fan of a lot of the uh, a lot of the shows that are out there now so uh and yeah and then then probably to bed at a reasonable hour so nothing too exotic you know i think uh i think if you're doing something that you like doing then that kind of becomes the center uh of your activities yeah Uh, But I think that'd be the general flow.
0: Okay, final question for me then. Um, Kind of on the topic of failure, because I think it's really important, uh, particularly if you want to do anything great, you've got to embrace failure, and you've got to uh, um, accept that that's a part of life and try to uh, fail fast, so to speak. Do you have any favorite failures? Or a failure that you've had, that uh, apparent failure that's actually set you up for success?
1: Well, first of all, to the latter, I think all of our failures open the door to success if we're willing to walk through it. Um, favorite failures, I mean, there are so many, right? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I remember when I, was, uh, when I was interviewing for this position at, at OPG, uh, I went into it uh, very conscious of the, the risk of failure. This was a huge project and, and very complicated, and these projects are notoriously hard to, to keep on track. Um, so I was, I was very sensitive to um, uh, failure as a, as a potential outcome of any large, complicated technical endeavor. And uh, so I, I, I got to the end of the process, you know, a number of discussions and interviews along the way, and I really spent about, I would guess, you'd have to ask uh, some of the folks I interviewed with, but I really feel like I spent the majority of my time talking about my failures. And uh, I don't know if that's a good interview technique. You know, I wasn't—I wasn't trying to get the job in that sense, but I did want to be honest. And and you know, when I—it was—it was, it was really—it uh, was an important point for me because I realized that's where I'd learned everything that I thought would add value to what I brought to the table. It was in the failures. It wasn't in the successes, right? Because generally, when you succeed, you're doing something that. For the most part, you, you have your hands around and you can see the outcome and you control the you know the, the majority of the variables and, and you know most of your successes are if we're all honest with ourselves tend to be slam dunks anyway, right? right? Not every now and then we get the we hit the one out of the park, which is awesome, but those are you know not uh, not the majority of the occasions. The failures are a lot more common if you're pushing yourself. And and so um, favorite failures, I'm trying to think of which one I want to share in a recorded fashion. Uh, you know, I had a, I've had a number of um, projects where the outcomes have not been what we wanted. Um, you know, probably the one I learned the most from—I won't be too specific—but but it was a construction project, and um, uh, it was a code compliance uh, project. A lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, welding and, and construction, heavy construction in an, an existing operating facility. And uh, we were, you know, months behind schedule and tens of millions of dollars over budget. And um, ultimately we made a decision to part company with one of the key uh, construction companies that was involved with us. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot about being able to separate, um, you know, organizational anxiety from good decision making, uh, from the need to, you know, to really, really think through decisions on the basis of what is in the best interest of the project and in the best interest of the company rather than what responds most viscerally to the, the, the anxiety I'm feeling right now. Uh, so thinking through that and trying to separate your own uh, kind of drives and reactions and, and maybe even your framework and, and, and model of, of what's right and wrong, what's fair, uh, those kind of things, uh, separate all that from what serves the best interest of the project and what serves the best interest of the company. Uh, so th- those are the ones I, I dwell on regularly to say, are we really making the, the decision for the reasons we think we're making it for, or are we making it for these other reasons and then explaining it in terms of these outcomes that we hope will, will follow. Um, so that's one I think about a lot. That's one I think about a lot.
0: Great. Yeah, I know. I think it's, it's important. Um, you have a slogan on our wall. You are safe here Mm -hmm. and it's really I mean obviously we care people are physically safe we don't want slips and falls but uh, the the real message behind that is we want people to feel psychologically safe Mm -hmm. that they can throw out an idea that everyone thinks is is garbage but they feel safe doing it right right? Um, and that we can uh, try things that don't work and move past it and I think fostering that ability where people can reflect on failures and kind of uh, uh, move forward is really important. How do you do that with your own team? How do you kind of ha- help people embrace failure and uh, and share um, share with comfort?
1: Um, you know, for, I would say that there uh, there was a, a conversation we were having about culture and how do you create culture uh, internally and and you know I came across this idea um, a, a while ago that stuck with me that. Culture is defined by who you hire, by who you fire, and by who you admire. And you know, all, all you know phrases like that mm-hmm. are generalizations and simplifications. But there's a really important truth in that, which is, you know, if people experience the first thing is most of it only learned by experience, mm-hmm. right? And, and so if people experience a place where they can share an idea that gets shot down, and yet they're still Their experience is that they're still a welcome part of the team they're still sought out for ideas and to contribute then they'll learn it's this is a place where I can throw out my crazy idea and only one out of ten may stick but the other nine people don't hold against me Uh, so I think you you have to build a place where you know it's how we treat people uh, in in terms of you know who is it that's that's uh, being that's moving up and increasing responsibility who is it that's, that we're parting ways with because they don't really fit where we're going? Uh, and then who do we look up to and call, people, uh, call people's attention to? You know, that will define the culture. So if people are allowed to try new things, to fail, uh, to offer crazy ideas, to have difficult conversations, and they're still experiencing that they're admired or, or at, that they're promoted, that they're moved up through the organization, then the culture's there. You've created it, right? And other people will come in and they'll see that. Right. Um, so I, I think that's, that's how you do it uh, fundamentally. And then we try to do it that way as well. I think the other thing is you know, try to have uh, open conversations, be open and honest about your own weaknesses. Um, you know, I, I think part of that is th- there's, there's a tendency on senior leaders to need to feel like they portray almost a superhuman or a bulletproof kind of persona to the organization that they have all the answers, that they, that, that they have no fear, no concern. Uh, I think it's important to portray the, that, you know, we all play a part. Uh, my part has this role and function, and your part has this role and function. But we're all, you know, learning, and we're all trying to do, uh, do our best, and we all fail. And so I think being human and accessible is a lot more powerful of a message from a leader than being perfect and, and being the smartest guy in the room. So, so I think how we behave in that regard, you know, being open to ideas, listening more than we speak, um, are all, all ways that leaders can help drive that, that culture of contribution and empowerment and people feeling like they really can be a part of something.
0: Thanks for listening to the NPX Innovation Catalyst Podcast. To subscribe and listen to past episodes, you can find us at Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever podcasts are available.